Please open your Bibles to the minor prophecy of Joel. We're going to be in chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 28 through 32, but this morning we'll only be looking at the first two verses of that section. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Once you've found your place in Scripture, please stand to your feet as we give honor to God's Word. God's Word says this. After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy Your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Sion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised. Among the survivors, the Lord calls. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be preeminent at this moment. That you would arrest our attention and cause us to behold Father, Son, and Spirit. Our triune God who who saves us and reconciles us to yourself. In whose image we are made. For whom all things exist. Lord, may we assemble now before you. Lord, we are as a church, your temple, and you dwell in our midst. You dwell in us, God. And you are piecing us together bit by bit with Christ as the cornerstone. So, Lord, when we assemble, there's a special a special assembly, God, is not just any gathering. But, Lord, you are especially present when your word is preached and your people are gathered. And so I pray that we would recognize how solemn this moment is, that we are not hearing a person speak, but we are listening to Almighty God as your word is read and explained. May our thoughts be changed. May we live differently because of what we hear in your word. May we talk differently. May we relate to each other differently. May we relate to the world differently, God, all for your glory's sake. Lord, what we read of today is a wonderful blessing. And I pray you'd help us to realize that we are in that reality of this blessing. May Christ be exalted and may he be shown to be the focus of Scripture and all things that Scripture point to, our beloved Savior. Lord, We thank you for this time together now. Minister to our hearts where they need to be. Some of us really need to be challenged this morning. Some of us need to be called out and rebuked. Some of us need a little bit of spurring on and just a little encouragement, a little bit of hope. We're living in dark times and maybe we're going through something scary in our lives and we need to know that that you have all things under control. Lord, we bless your name. And we look forward to more people coming to know you as, as Savior, as you work your special will. And only you can do that, God, as you give a new life to sinners who are dead in their sins. As you give faith and give repentance. God, may you call your sheep home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Visitation, The Torrent of Judah. This is part one. We'll cover the first two verses that we just read, and in part two, we'll cover the next portion. This morning, I'm going to use the book of Ruth as an introduction to what we're talking about in Joel. Normally, I don't do that. I'll have some other type of story or something that will take us from the natural to the spiritual, but the book of Ruth is a a wonderful place to start. It's an account in the scripture that, that starts off horribly wrong, but it ends with wonderful hope. At the beginning... We read that there's a famine in the land of Israel. And because of that famine, a family has moved from Bethlehem, Israel, and they've moved to the country of Moab to try to survive. Moab was a pagan, an idolatrous people, and they're the enemies of Israel at that point in Scripture. In Israel, food sources are all but dried up because of the famine. And when we went through the book of Ruth, when I taught through it, we saw that this famine was part of the judgment of God. During the life of Moses, 
God had made a covenant with Israel, and he promised to abundantly bless the land of the Israelites if they remained faithful to him. And if they didn't, then God would curse the land, would curse their crops, and they would be a cursed people. But if they repented and returned to God, then he would visit them with restored blessings, and the land would be healed, and they would prosper, and they'd have more than they could uh, contain. And so this family leaves Israel to try to avoid the judgment of God, to avoid the, uh, avoid the consequence of their breaking covenant with God. And so while this family was in Moab, all of the men died over a 10-year period. A lady named Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And she's become very bitter. All that remained with her were her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And one day, she's out working hard in the field. She's trying to survive and get some food. And she hears and gets word about what is happening back in Bethlehem, back in Israel. The Lord God had returned blessings to Israel, and he had given them food, crops. The signals to us that God is now blessing Israel because as a whole, they have repented and returned to him. And as she plans to return home, she does so, and she's wanting to go alone. And as the story continues, she tells her two daughters-in-law, why don't you go back to Moab, stay here, get remarried, you girls are young. One agrees, and the other refuses and decides to go along with Naomi back to her home. And once they get back to Bethlehem, they make use of the welfare system that God instituted in Israel. The poor people were allowed to glean in any field. That is, they were able to gather crops that did not get harvested, were left behind, or were dropped, and they could keep it to themselves. And that was part of what God required of the Israelites to help the poor. So blessing is returning to Israel and to the newly arrived Naomi and Ruth. Over time and through a variety of circumstances, Ruth, the, young, the younger one, meets a man named Boaz. He is from Naomi's clan, actually from her deceased husband's clan. And he is what we call a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer. He is a rescuer of sorts, a deliverer. And he had allowed Ruth to glean in his field, and he really took good care of her and Naomi by giving them a ton of food. He went well beyond what was required of him by God, and he blessed them abundantly. And eventually he marries Ruth and has a child with her. Naomi is overjoyed, she's happy, no longer bitter, and both Naomi and Ruth are blessed by God beyond belief. Ruth's son ends up becoming one of the ancestors of Jesus. And that's where this story is taking us. It's a beautiful account, and it teaches us several things. Number one, it ultimately is pointing towards Jesus, our Redeemer, who rescues us and delivers us from trouble. Number two, it's showing us the ancestry of Jesus as we track the coming of the Savior from the Old Testament. Number three, it shows us that God keeps his word. He curses a rebellious people, and he blesses people when they return to him in repentance. Blessings and cursings, all tied to the land, just as he said in the Mosaic Covenant. And number four, it shows us that through Jesus, our great Redeemer, that God intends to ultimately bless us with a new heaven, on a new earth, a new creation, our promised land. But those who want to remain in rebellion to God will be judged by God and sent to hell. Brothers and sisters, God has always intended to bless humanity. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, we see that God wants to live with humanity on earth, and he wants to abundantly bless them. But it is our rebellion that brings the curse and the judgment of God. We are the bad ones. We are the fools. We are the sinners who would rather rule our own lives apart from God, and we would rather suffer the judgment of our creator than to be blessed by him. It's, it's our sinful, wicked hearts that cannot see God for who he is that he wants to tremendously bless us with himself and in a creation that has no pain and suffering. 
Nevertheless, Scripture shows us that in spite of our rebellion, God is intent in overcoming that rebellion. He intends to forgive sin. He's intent on blessing humanity for all eternity. And we see this in the account of Ruth, and we also get a glimpse of this in the book of Joel. The pinnacle, the high point of God's blessing is his presence. He himself is the greatest treasure that God can ever give us. He's the biggest blessing of his many blessings. He gives us himself, and he takes us as his own people. And all of that is accomplished by what Jesus has done for us in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. In Joel, this is going to get crystallized a little bit more. So take what we just heard of Ruth, and you're going to see this I almost all those ideas super implanted on top of Joel, and you're going to see how much it, it is mirrored, okay? Joel is a message from God through the prophet to the people of Israel or Judah, the southern kingdom, and their priests. A locust invasion of unparalleled proportion has hit Israel, and they are left in decimated condition with no food. Remember the famine issue with Ruth? They're left with no food because of a locust invasion. Their food and drink sources have been depleted. This isn't just a physical problem. It is a spiritual problem, and it indicates to us that they have broken covenant with God once again, and they're incurring the curses of the covenant. And that is why God calls them in this book to wake up, to weep, and to wail, to come out of your spiritual torpidity, their sluggishness, their mental stupor, With the harvest being devastated, they can no longer offer thank offerings to God. They have nothing to give back to God say, God, thank you for everything you gave me. Here's a piece back to you to say thank you. They can't do that because they have nothing from God. These offerings uh, to God were from the bounty that he blessed them with. And so it should be very apparent in Joel that God has chosen to take away his blessings due to sin. There is nothing but heartache and travesty and judgment and sadness and pain and suffering due to rebellion against God that comes through loudly in Joel. And this should let them know that God is displeased And God even calls the priests to repent. They should all realize that God is acting in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant, as stated earlier. God promised to bless or curse depending on how uh, they kept covenant or broke covenant with him. And turning away from God, he would send disaster in a variety of ways, and locusts and drought were some of the ways, and that's what we see in Joel. Once again, the big picture, it shows us that God intends to bless us with life eternal life and the new creation forevermore and that if you are outside of covenant with God you will perish forever blessings and curses in essence these small stories that we read of and accounts that we read of in the old testament point us to the end time blessing of the new creation with heaven on earth or the end time curse of eternal death where you live forever dying under the wrath of God after calling Judah to awaken from her slumber. God then lets them know that the day of the Lord has come upon them in this locust invasion. In other words, they're in the midst of judgment. And we looked at this concept of the day of the Lord, which is the theme of Joel. The day of the Lord is a repeated event in which God displays his glory by saving some, so there's good news in the day of the Lord, or by judging others. There's bad news in the day of the Lord as well, but it's a repeated event with a bright side and with a dark side. And we noted that there were several days of the Lord that took place in Scripture, that it's not just an end-time event, that it happened in multiple occasions, all right? But we know there is a final event, a final day of the Lord to which all these other days of the Lord point to. A day of the Lord is coming when Jesus returns to finalize salvation for the church and rescue us, and at that same time, he will judge the world. And so it's, the day of the Lord is not so much about a single event as it is a repeated event that's pointing towards a final event. And so the day of the Lord has come upon Judah. God warns, though, that this day is going to come in greater fullness if they do not repent. And so the day of the Lord came to Judah, and God said it's going to come for certain. And God warns this fullness of it is coming. It's a certain event. They cannot avoid it. 
And in this warning, God uses decreation language. Let me say that again. He uses decreation language. In the creation account, mentally just go with me back to the first few chapters of Genesis, we see at the beginning the sun and the moon were created and they provided light for everyone. We see the waters and the mist causing vegetation to sprout out from the ground. And we see God blessing Adam and Eve by living with them and by giving them uh, creation. And he blessed them. He blessed them in this wonderful land as he created everything and said, be fruitful and multiply. So creation is meant to be a blessing from God to us to show us his tangible love. You with me on that part so far? Okay. Decreation language reverses that in order to show judgment, not blessing. Instead of light shining on the land in Joel, we see that the land will be overcome with darkness and the sun will be darkened by the locusts. Instead of vegetation sprouting up, it's going to be scorched by drought and the locusts consuming it all. The promised land of Israel was supposed to be their Eden-like land. Joel even tells us this. Blessings, though, are, are, are going to be removed, and it's, become a, it's going to become a desolate, desolate wasteland if they do not repent. Do you see the decreation language? It's not going to be a blessing. You're going to be cursed. Okay, So blessings are being removed, and curses are being inflicted. The sun and the moon will darken, and stars won't shine. And what we learn in Joel lets us know that mankind must repent and turn back to God before the final judgment comes where decreation happens and God comes to judge the world in fire. And after that, then God will restore creation and we will live in this new creation, those of us who have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Just as God judged the the first world, we will say, in Noah's day with the flood, he will not do that, but it will be flooded with fire, not water. Judgment language, decreation, okay? Malachi taught us this. And only the ones remaining after God's judgment of the scorched earth policy that's coming, only those who have turned to Jesus will be rescued. And God will create a new Eden for us to live in forever, those that know Christ. You see, God is a God of unsurpassable grace, a God of unsurpassable mercy. He is slow to anger, as Joel tells us. He abounds in steadfast love. He relents from sending disaster. And he blesses when people come to him for salvation and they recognize that they have sinned against him. Repentance and faith. I believe what you tell me, God. I trust that you can save me. And I turn away from rebellion. Please rescue me. And that is what we learn at the beginning of Joel 2. In the middle of Joel 2, we learn that Judah repented. How do we know? Because God is now promising to bless their land. He's going to restore the vegetation. It's going to be lush. And he's going to send rain, 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 and more rain. Rain and an abundance of crops are going to be poured out on the land and upon the people. Everything's going to overflow. This previous condition of devastation is now going to be reversed. And they will be able to offer portions of this overflow back to God to say, thank you, God, for loving us and blessing our land. And their worship rituals will resume, showing that they are in proper, showing that they are in proper covenant with God. They'll be able to say, thank you for blessing us. God, we now feast and eat with you. Here is a grain offering, God. Here is a drink offering. We celebrate and love you and feast with you now. And the land was not to fear any longer. They were to be glad and rejoice, the land was. And the beasts of the field were called to no longer be afraid. And the people of Israel, that is the children of Zion, were to rejoice in the Lord their God. Rejoice in God. It's God's jealous love for his people and his restored blessings that were going to remove the public shame that they had to endure They were experiencing humiliation. The other nations are mocking them for having this weak God that couldn't provide for them. The other nations were mocking them because Yahweh couldn't appear. He was appearing not to be able to provide rain. And he appeared not to be able to drive away locusts and to provide food. And so they're mocking. And God says, I will take away your shame. 
And this is how God is going to do it. He's going to send rain. He's going to fend off the locusts and destroy the locusts. And then their shame will be gone as blessings are brought back. They've been reconciled to God. And he's vindicating them and showing the world that Judah does follow the correct God. The crops will flourish. Blessings will overflow. Locusts are driven away to their death. All right, and the rain is coming, and she says Judah will be satiated. Judah will be satisfied, and they will never again be put to shame. And this brings us to where we're at in Joel. Now, the reason that I went so much over that is because I haven't preached in a couple of months due to some consecutive illnesses that I had. Since Thanksgiving, I've had COVID and bronchitis and the flu, and we're barely <laughs> in the beginning of the year, and so I haven't been able to preach due to that. But uh, thank you for your prayers But that's why I'm giving a recap. We haven't been here in a while. Now, when you understand this context in in this writing so far, all right, uh, the next part of Joel begins to make a whole lot of sense. Think about it. God brought locusts and destruction and drought. That is to say, judgment. And now he's giving them protection from the locusts and the drought. The locusts will die. Judah will live. Rain has been poured out on the land. Crops are going to grow. This is a blessing from God. And what we read of is that Judah has experienced the day of the Lord. The bad part, and now they're experiencing the salvation part, the good news part, right? Remember, God said it was coming for certain. They couldn't avoid it, and they didn't. Thank goodness they didn't avoid it in a good way, okay? And now we read in Joel 2, 28, that something different other than rain and physical blessing is going to be poured out on Judah. This is further blessing that speaks of God's salvation for humanity. And even though there is more blessing to come, all right, uh, from their historical perspective, all right, there is salvation to come. There is something coming, all right? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, beginning of this section, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. God is going to visit humanity with his presence. And the blessing is this. He's going to pour out, not rain, not physical blessing. In this part, he's going to pour out his spirit. His spirit. That is the torrential blessing that is coming on humanity, but on Judah. And those who remain in rebellion, who don't call upon the Lord, will experience the wrath and the judgment of God as the second part of this section talks about. So let's dive into the text. We're going to see how this plays out. We're going to see how it's related to Christ. Again, this morning, we're only looking at two verses. Let me reread them with you. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2 and verse 29. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. And so what we see here is an outpouring of the spirit of God. That is our one and only point today. An outpouring of salvation. An outpouring of the spirit of God. Now this portion of scripture starts out with a time marker. That phrase, after this. You see that right at the beginning? It signals what is going to take place after the events that God has just promised in the previous section, which I summarized. God promised to remove their shame, to drive the locusts to their death, to restore what the locusts devoured by sending rain in abundance. He will fill the storehouses and the grain houses, and they will overflow. What a contrast compared to the judgment they had been through. And all these current and near blessings at this time if we recall, are to show that God is in the midst of Israel, that there are no other gods, and he is doing it for his own glory and for the love of Judah. We, uh, he will get the attention of the nations around Judah. And it's after this, after that, that God is going to pour out his spirit. But we don't know exactly when. It doesn't give us an exact time marker, just in the future after that. Near, far, we don't know as of yet. Now, what does that phrase mean? It certainly means after this, after those things, but it means much more. It is a phrase that has to do with the last days or the end times. The end times. How do I know? Because this is how Peter interprets it. This is how Peter translated it. 
uh, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. We'll talk more about that. But as far as Judah is concerned, God doesn't tell them exactly when it will take place, but it's in the future. It is a phrase that relates to the end times. Looking from our vantage point, all right, we can see something different that many hundreds of years later, all right, this promise was initiated. If you know the New Testament, and we're going to talk about that today. This promise of God is that he would pour out his spirit on all humanity. I want you to hear the bigger context, though. Judah, in your sin, you couldn't offer grain offerings or drink offerings. I took away blessings. There was no wine. There was no oil to pour out. But in your repentance, I am pouring out physical blessings upon your land and on your crops. You will be blessed because of them, and you will worship me properly. But I'm not done. I'm going to pour out something else, my spirit. Hear that context. Now, the word spirit... In Hebrew, I don't often use Hebrew terms or Greek terms, but I just want you to tuck it away for a second. In Hebrew, it's ruach. I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm going to pour out my ruach. And it could mean wind. It could mean breath. It could mean spirit. And just keep that little bit of information handy for later in the sermon, okay? Ruach, spirit, wind, breath. Don't forget it. Now, you have to understand that the spirit of God didn't dwell in believers' back then like he does now. That indwelling of God's spirit, God's spirit being poured out on people, was a promise for the new covenant people of God. Under the old covenant, or the Old Testament, it was very rare that someone had the spirit poured out on them. But at times, God did pour out his spirit on certain individuals to empower them to carry out his will. To name a few individuals, God did it with Samson in Judges 15 when he was tied up and broke the ropes that bound him. The Spirit came upon him. Or another time when the Spirit came on Jehaziel and the Spirit empowered him to speak and to encourage Jehoshaphat and Judah in 2 Chronicles 20. Or another time when the Spirit came upon King David to empower him for leadership. As we read in 1 Samuel 16. But this wasn't for everybody. This didn't happen to everyone, only a select few. And the spirit coming upon or being poured out on an individual was always for service for the will of God to further carry out his redemption plan. Let's remember that, don't forget that, because the next part of what we're looking at in Joel is going to take Judah's current understanding and knowledge and experience of how the Spirit works, and that is going to get totally uprooted and altered and changed in what God tells them. Their experience said it's not for everyone, only a few, and it's for God's people in Israel every now and then. And what they're about to hear is different. God promises here is, uh, his promise is that all flesh... All humanity will have the Spirit. That's different, right, than their historical experience. You mean the Spirit is going to come upon people and it won't be for a select few leaders? God's Spirit is going to come on all humanity and not just the Israelites? You're going to bless us physically and spiritually? Like, we get to do this too, not just kings, not just uh, judges? Us too? Now, please understand that when scripture says God's spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, it doesn't mean every single person, okay? The phrase all humanity in this text is qualified by the next several phrases. The phrases that are used, uh, there's a fancy term for it in in, uh, language. They're called merisms, merisms. Merisms express completeness. And that's what the prophet Joel, by God's word being delivered to him, is expressing. Uh, Merisms are words or phrases that are meant to clarify extremes or completeness. Okay? I'll give you an example. When God forgives our sin, he forgives it completely, right? Scripture says it's as far as east is from the west. He has removed our sin from us. East and, yeah, that's east and that's west, right? Those are two extremes expressing completeness. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, beginning and the end. 
completeness. I itched from head to toe after that sunburn, right? You guys know how that sunburn itches? It just itches all over. Completeness. Maybe some of you looked for your earbuds and couldn't find them, and you looked from one end of the house to the other, and you looked high and low. Those are merisms. Now, the first merism that God uses in Joel to express what he means by all humanity is this phrase of sons and daughters. They will receive the Spirit of God and will prophesy. The merism is meant to include both genders that God created. That's the completeness factor. One is not excluded from having the Spirit of God because of their sex. There is completeness in that both genders will have the Spirit of God. Not every single person. There's a a certain kind of completeness that's being expressed. And God says that they will prophesy as a result of having the Spirit of God poured out on them. To prophesy, let me explain, and we'll use other scriptures to help make sense of this, is to simply speak or utter things under the influence of the Spirit of God so that what is being spoken is the message of God. That's what prophecy is. It's God speaking to humanity through a person And Joel says this is going to include all genders. That is not to say that there are more than two genders, as if there's a spectrum, but rather God will pour out his spirit on both. Completeness. Then Joel uses a second merism. Old men, I I think that's me now. I'm I'm an old man. Uh, I turned 50 at the end of November, and I've been nothing but sick since then, so I think I qualify as uh, I'm over the hill and I'm rapidly descending, right? But Joel uses the second merism. Old men will have dreams and young men will see visions. The Spirit of God will be poured out and not confined to a certain age group. All ages will have access to the indwelling Spirit of God. Again, this isn't all persons, but it includes young and old besides both genders. And they will have dreams or visions, dreams at night, visions or what God reveals while you're awake, which is to say again that God will use them to mediate his word to humanity. God will use them, doesn't matter if you're old or young, to mediate his word to humanity. And then Joel uses a third merism. God through Joel repeats that again that he will pour out his spirit on both male and female slaves in those days. This is a merism that's meant to help you see that social class or public standing will not affect who God gives his spirit to. Normally, you see a prophet having the spirit poured out, or a judge or a king receiving the spirit. But now it includes men and women slaves. It's not just the rich or the poor, right? The rich, but the poor. Not just for kings, but it's also for those who are generally considered low in society. Not just the boss, but the employee, the slaves, and the servants. Now, let me pause for a moment in Joel, okay? Let me pause for a moment. I want to look at several other passages that are given in the Old Testament in relation to Israel that help us to see the Spirit of God, what is, being hap- what, what is happening here, what God has promised, and we're going to look at it in relation to the New Covenant. And then we're going to look at the New Testament, okay, to see some other things. So Jeremiah chapter 33, it should be up on the screen for you. You can follow along, or if you want to look in your Bibles, you can. Let me read it. I'm going to make a little bit of comment. Of course, this isn't our main text for today, so I'm not going to explain this 100%. We just want to touch on some things here. Verse 31 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So please pay attention to who this is for. This covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God is using marriage language to see that he was betrothed, married to Israel, and they cheated on him. They whored around with other gods and violated this covenant, this marriage covenant, this, the Mosaic covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant, the Old Testament. He says, this is the covenant that I will make. So he's contrasting the Old Covenant and then the one that is coming, this new one. That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And notice the I wills, what God is doing. 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in this passage, we see the promise of a new covenant. The old covenant was made at Mount Sinai, when Moses, uh, God used Moses to lead them out of Egypt, and it included all the laws that God gave to Israel about feasts, about holy days, and offerings, and sacrifices, and civil laws, and restitution, laws about the priesthood, and so much more. Okay? Israel had just been saved by God from the evil Egyptians, the cruel Egyptians, and now Israel was to lovingly obey Yahweh as their savior, as their, uh, their creator, their God. And as I mentioned many times, in this covenant that God made, there's, a, there's blessings and there's sanctions. There's blessings and curses. They would receive blessings for obeying God in this land that he gave them. Like, it's a no-brainer. Just do what God says and you'll be all, all right forever. It's tied to the land and disobedience would bring curses. This was their portion of the earth. Because Israel repeatedly turned from Yahweh in the Old Covenant, and they broke covenant with him, God's going to make a new covenant. In the new covenant, God's law would be written on their hearts, not on tablets of stone. God would be their God, and they would be his people. That's covenant language. And that is to say that they would not stray from God like they had been continually. He will be their God. They will be his people. He will not say, you are no longer my people, as he did at times. And it will be because the law is permanently written on their hearts. As a result of the law being written on the hearts, they would also know God individually and personally as the one who forgives and saves. And one thing we need to remember is that this promised new covenant was given to Israel. We see that, right? Okay. At the time of this writing, they believed it only to be for them. Nothing for Gentiles or, or non-Jews is mentioned here. Let's look at Ezekiel 36. I want to get a better understanding of this new covenant with you. This is what Pastor John read right before he prayed. Ezekiel 36. It's a lengthier passage, but listen to what God is going to do. Look at all the I wills, okay? Ezekiel 36, verse 22. should be on the screen for you as well. Therefore, say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act for, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, 
O house of Israel. And so we, we see here in this passage that God is going to act for his glory, not for Israel's. They drug his name through the mud before the nations with their sin. That was what it means to profane. They made God's name appear to be unholy. Unholy. And God will vindicate his name. The nations will know, and they will know. They won't mock God any longer, these corrupt nations. They will come to know that he is Lord. God promises to gather Israel together in the land that he gave them. He's going to clean them from their sin and save them, and then he's going to give them a new heart. The old hearts continually turned away from him, and he says that he will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. That is to say they'll be born again, made spiritually alive with a new heart. They'll be made new on the inside, rebellious hearts of dead stone will be replaced with obedient hearts that beat for God and his law. And he says that he will put his spirit, he's going to put his spirit within them, and the Holy Spirit will cause them to walk, to walk according to his law. Because what did they formerly do? They did not obey God. And their lives were marked by continual rebellion against God. And then God goes on to describe the physical blessings that he's going to pour out so that they will never again be disgraced among the nations. Joel talks about this shame never coming again to Israel. And here we see that it's tied to the new covenant. Looking back at their past, Israel will be disgusted in how they used to live, and this is all for God's glory. But again, Notice that it was for Israel. Gentiles are not mentioned as being included in the new covenant, and that's how Israel or Judah would have looked at the new covenant. God is going to give us his indwelling spirit. We will have a special land, an Eden-like land, and we will get new hearts and be born again. God will write his law on our hearts, and we'll have the knowledge of God and intimacy with him, and we will never turn away from God again, which means we will also be blessed physically in the land that God has given us, blessed beyond belief. We'll never be able to abandon God again, and we'll forever love him as God, and we will be his people. What bliss. Brothers and sisters, that is the blessing of the new covenant for Israel. It was inaugurated on the day that Christ died. It was further fulfilled in the day of Pentecost, and it's still coming to pass today. Recall with me the first couple of chapters of Acts. In Acts 1, Jesus has already been crucified and buried and risen again, and he's been alive for 40 days on earth, walking and talking and teaching his disciples in public. No way to publicly deny his resurrection. And he instructs them, right? He instructs them on his final day that he's with them. Before he's about to uh, ascend into heaven, he instructs them on this final day. He says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And I want you to wait for the promise of God. This promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. Right? If you recall Acts 1, that's what's going on. They're being told that Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36 are about to take place. Gosh, it's been hundreds of years after God blessed us in our land. And it's finally going to happen. Our people have been waiting for centuries. And we get to be that generation that sees and experiences the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus tells them that when the Spirit comes on them, listen to Jesus' words, Right, go back and read them, that they will receive power and that this power will be for the purpose of being his witnesses to people near and far. Okay? You will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you and you will be witnesses near and far for my sake, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. And they will have the ability to prophesy with the power of the Spirit. They'll speak God's message to people that need to hear about Jesus, the Savior. That's what Jesus says. Let's make sure we link this back to what Joel is saying and those merisms. All flesh will receive the Spirit, men and women, young and old, those of low social status in Israel. They will prophesy, these Israelites. They will dream dreams and see visions because of the indwelling Spirit of God. Jesus' words thus give us greater clarity as to what Joel means. The Spirit, in other words, empowers faithful Israel to witness for his glory. 
That's what Joel is saying. Then Jesus ascends to heaven on a cloud. Several days later, they're all in one place waiting, as Jesus told them, to wait. Wait. Do not go anywhere and wait for the outpouring of the Spirit that the Father promised. He's going to send the Spirit. And Jesus even said, it's good that I go away. It's good that I go away because then you'll receive the Spirit. Several days later, it's on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. This is 50 days after the Feast of Passover. All of a sudden, they hear what sounds like wind to them. Wind. It's a theophany. What's a theophany? It's a physical manifestation of God. But this manifestation isn't one of the Father, and it's not one of the Son. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and this manifestation sounds like wind, which in the Old Testament is ruach, the Spirit, wind. In the New Testament, it's the same, it's not the same word, but it's the Greek word for wind and spirit. And so the ruach of the Old Testament is now manifesting himself on the day of Pentecost in the sound of wind. He's being poured out on all believing Israel, and all those particular Jews begin speaking about the marvelous deeds of God. That's what they're doing. Known deeds of God is what they're declaring. They're doing exactly what Joel said they would do when he says they'll dream dreams and see visions and they will prophesy. They're bearing witness about God. Just as Jesus said, when you receive power, you will be witnesses for me. Okay? But they're doing it in a a variety of languages that they did not know and that they did not learn. We would call that speaking in tongues, in known languages, to make sure that all of Israel from, that had different languages and grew up with different languages would hear about Christ. This is spirit-enabled, spirit-enabled, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out, and this happens in 30 AD. That pouring of the Spirit serves several purposes. One, to make sure that all Israel hears of Jesus, the God-man who died and rose to save them. And number two, to show the world that God is in the midst of his people, Israel. And he intends to radically bless them physically and spiritually. Now, I don't know about you. I, I want in on that. God, could you include me? I want the spirit of God to dwell in me and to empower me to serve him. I want God to be in our midst, in my midst. God is my God, and I want to be one of his. I want to be blessed on earth. I don't want to have to deal with the nations that mock and shame me and hurl insults at me. You believe in some God that that can't even stop the evils in this world. If, If God is real, why don't he just make himself appear to you right now? You think I want to be mocked? I don't. Lord, can you vindicate your name? Can I be a part of that vindication? God, you seem to be far off in the nation's mock. I want God to work for his glory, and I want to be part of what he's doing. But as we read in the Old Testament, the new covenant seems to be for Israel. So is it for us Gentiles too? Or is it, is it for non-Jews or just Jews only? Well, this is where we come to look at another part of the New Testament. The day of Pentecost has passed. It's now seven to ten years later from when the Spirit was first poured out on Israel on the day of Pentecost, those believing Jews. Up until this time, the Jewish church and the apostles have been preaching Christ and suffering sometimes because of that. But many multitudes of Jewish people and priests were getting saved. The Spirit enabled witness and power was indeed taking place. In Acts 10, though, the scripture will be on the screen. Peter is preaching the gospel. He's preaching under the spirit enabling that God promised, that Christ promised. But this time he's preaching Jesus to non-Jews, to Gentiles. He's doing that spirit-empowered prophesying. And this is what happens in Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised 
who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, making much of God and declaring his deeds. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Brothers and sisters, it is abundantly clear that the new, te- the new covenant, the promised spirit was coming for Israel. And the new covenant included a new spirit, a new heart, the law written on their hearts, the indwelling spirit with the ability to be strong witnesses for Christ and promised physical and spiritual blessing. All these things are for believing Israel and they are for believing Gentiles. That's you. You get to have God live in you and me by believing in Jesus. We've been included in the new covenant. And one of the reasons that those first Gentile believers spoke in various languages or tongues was to prove to the Jews that the the spirit was in them too. They had the same exact spirit. God was in the midst of the Gentiles as well. The savior of Israel is the savior of the world. All nations, but not every person. Only those who believe the gospel message that, that these early Jews and these early Gentiles believe that Jesus is the Savior. This is how God vindicates his name among the nations. The, the nations that mock and ridicule and act like he doesn't exist, this is how God vindicates his name. He does so by converting these people. And they won't mock. And they'll see God as God. He puts his spirit and he lives amongst humanity. And those who refuse, he judges. And when it comes to our passage this morning, and Peter's mentioning of it in Acts, there are several perspectives that I want to just mention briefly. Because Peter, in, uh, in Acts, he refers back to the passage in Joel. He says, this is that. Okay? What's happening here in Jerusalem, with all the Jews receiving the Spirit-enabled witnessing, and they're speaking in other languages, telling about God, that's what Joel talked about, okay? There's one perspective that says that Peter didn't really believe that that was a fulfillment of what Joel talked about. And this perspective says, Peter's just using it as an example, as an illustration. Joel is just an illustration of what's taking place, but it's, it's not more fulfillment of the new covenant, It was inaugurated and started at Jesus' death, and these promises are coming to pass, but it wasn't that. The other spectrum says that what happened there, it's it's a one and done, and that's it. Okay, there's no other further outpouring. Well, based on what we read in Scripture, and I think based on what the rest of the New Testament shows, there's a third view that actually falls more in line with what Scripture is showing. This view is that the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh started that day, and it's going to continue until Christ comes again. We know from Acts 10 that the outpouring continued beyond Pentecost, seven to ten years later. So it wasn't completely fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. There was more fulfillment to take place as the Spirit is poured out on Gentiles. With the Spirit working in the early church, the gospel was able to be taken to all nations. Right? People that spoke different languages than the Jewish people did. And an outpouring is still coming to pass today. Does that mean that spirit-empowered people can still speak in tongues? Well, that's for another sermon. All right? That's for another discussion. But the fact that we are still sharing the gospel worldwide means the mission is still going on by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is empowering the global church for corporate ministry. Why, though? Why? Because God has always intended to dwell with humanity on earth. You have to get some of these things. In the Garden of Eden, okay, God inhabited what we would call his cosmic temple. In creation, you see that God created the heavens, right? It was later that, on a different day, that he filled them with the sun and the moon. At the beginning of creation, we see God separating the waters from the land. 
And it was later on different days that he filled those waters and then he started to fill the land with vegetation and cattle. So it's like he's creating blank canvases and then filling them with beauty. And then God creates man and he says, I want you to fill the earth with my, with my likeness because that's what I've made you in. God is intended to dwell with humanity on earth with his glory permeating all of creation. Out of the entire universe, this is the special temple. Earth is where God has chosen to dwell with humanity. And this is but a, a, a what's the right word? An illustration, if you will. Earth is a reality, but it, in heaven, God is filling the temple there with his glory. Okay? And so he creates an earthly one. And then when you look later in scripture, you see God creating a temporary place to dwell with Israel called a tabernacle. And he came and filled his presence in that temple. So we move from heavenly temple to earthly temple to a tent-like temple where God dwells with Israel. And then we see God instituting a, a building called a temple. And it is there that God fills with his glory Right? And we sang about that this morning in a song. And then we see that temple destroyed and another one built that's smaller in size. And God says, I'm going to fill it with a greater glory. And that glory was Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and went inside that temple. And then what do we see? In the New Testament, the church is called the temple. And there they are assembling. And God comes and fills them. God has always intended to dwell with us on earth. And when you look towards the end, and you see the same thing in Revelation, that we will dwell with God forever. It's a beautiful story that Scripture shows us. Under the, the Old Testament, right, we see these things happening that point to a final fulfillment. We are his temple. The blessings of Israel are but a microcosm of what God wants to do globally. God's spirit came upon a few individuals in the old covenant. Under the new, he comes upon all flesh. Under the old covenant, God dwelled amongst Israel in a temple. Under the new covenant, he dwells globally because he is in all believers who are his living temple. Under the old covenant, God wanted to give Israel a tiny piece of land in the Middle East. In the new covenant, an entire new planet is coming to God's covenant people. Under the old covenant, God punished unbelieving Israel by taking away blessings and cursings. Under the new covenant, the day of the Lord is going to come in finality. And all unbelievers will be cursed and banished from earth in a judgment that is unparalleled and will never be duplicated, that will go on forever. Under the old covenant, sacrifices of animals took place. Sacrifices which could never take away our sins. But under the new covenant, Christ comes as the premier and the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest to take away the sins of the world so that the Holy Spirit could dwell in a purified temple of humanity. Church, what God did through Israel was legitimate and important, but it was a microcosm of what God is doing on a grander scale. God is working out his plan on a magnitude bigger than we can imagine. And he does it for his glory. And we get to taste in the blessings for all eternity. Let us never forget, let us never forget that God's word leads us to Christ. And today we see how this plays out. Christ died and rose again to cleanse us from our sin so that God's spirit would come and dwell in us so that we would tell others about him. Okay? So this begs the question, what evidence is there that the almighty spirit of God dwells in you? Now, some of us need to really sit up and take this to heart. I intend for some of you to be made very uncomfortable right now, okay? It's not because I don't love you. It is for your good. We don't often do self-examination and we just coast through life some time. What evidence then is there that the almighty spirit of God dwells in you? Or are you spiritless and bound for hell? Do you possess spirit-empowered ability to testify about Christ? I'm not talking about tongues. I'm talking about spirit-empowered evangelism. Is there evidence, because Jesus says when the spirit comes upon you, you're, you're going to do, this is part of the new covenant, the ability to tell people about Christ because the spirit is in you, making God's name known so that his name is vindicated and the nations will know. Is there evidence that the Spirit lives in you? Do you desire to obey God 
Because that is part of the new covenant and what the Spirit promises to do for you as you have the law of God written on your heart. Is your life marked by obedience to God? Does he cause you to walk according to the law of Christ that Pastor Steve has been preaching about? If, because if all you do is rebel against God and you walk in sin and you do wicked things with no guilt, with no sense of remorse and no shame, and you say you're a Christian, I'm telling you, you're on your way to hell. Give lip service all you want. I know what God has promised in the new covenant. And that is, he's promised, he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And there are some people here that name the name of Christ and you never think about God. Your default setting in life is not to use your spare time to think about the things of God or to study scripture or to sing praises to God. Your default thinking is always the world. And you say you're a Christian. And your default position is, how do I make more money? And how do I get more pleasure in life? And how do I consume more movies? And how do I consume more entertainment? And what can I do on this social media platform? And God is never your true treasure where your default position, when you're not required to focus on work or important things, your default position is not towards God. And the new covenant shows us something different. There's a lot of people who proclaim the name of Christ. They fake it well, and they will die and go to hell because they love their sin more than the creator who made them. And Joel teaches that the day of the Lord is a real event. It's good news to those who God is saving, and it's bad news to those who want to rebel. The blessings and the curses of the Old Testament point towards greater blessings. And the curses towards curses that are... They're impossible to put into words. Words do not do justice completely when it comes to describing the torrential judgment of hell that is coming. We, we can all, words just merely signify the reality. That's all we can do is use words like fire to paint a picture of what is to come in darkness. Like that gnashing of teeth, that's the best we can come up with by God, the inspiration of God's spirit. But I promise you, if you think those are figurative words, the figurative is, is always less than the literal. So let's say for a moment, oh, I think hell is figurative. You're in worse trouble than you can imagine. And you think the fires are figurative. Because the symbol always points to a greater reality. Either way, it's not good, okay? There are blessings and there are curses. Eternal life and eternal death. And all that will remain for those who rebel against God is utter darkness, a sickening feeling in your stomach, and utter despair that you feel for having missed out on the greatest blessing in the presence of God. And you will grit your teeth and you will weep and gnash for all of eternity. That is why God took on flesh. Jesus. That's why he died on the cross. So that you wouldn't have to suffer the wrath of God. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus suffered your day of the Lord. So it can be said that the day of the Lord was inaugurated when Christ came that first time and suffered the wrath of God. but it's still coming for those who have yet to repent. And we get to have this good news. If you're an unbeliever, I urge you to stop your rebelling against God, to call upon him, to call upon Christ as Savior, to trust him to save you, and that you will serve him. The only thing I can do is to quote Peter. When he preached on the day of Pentecost, he said this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Unbeliever, this promise is for you. For your children yet to be born. For those who are far off. This message has been preached for several thousands of years. And that means that God is not done pouring out his spirit on all flesh. There is still time. But at the end of time, when Christ comes again, the day of the Lord that began when Christ came and suffered our judgment, that good news day of the Lord, while he suffered the bad news part of it, right, there is a final 
day coming, the culmination of it, the ending of it. And this day will be completed when Christ comes again to fix our salvation once and for all in the new creation and to judge the world. This will be bad news, the bad news day of the Lord for wicked believers. And the Lord is going to look at humanity and he's going to see if his deposit of the Holy Spirit is there in people. And that is what will settle the matter of who truly is God's and who isn't. He's going to look for himself in you. Do I see myself in you? That's the deposit I put there so I know that you're mine. If the spirit is not in you, then it shows that God was never your God and that you were never part of his people. And you will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. But for those who have the indwelling spirit, you will hear, come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Church, we need to learn from Joel. It teaches as much about Christ that we should never forget. God intends to live with humanity, intends to pour out his spirit on humanity. A torrential outpouring of his spirit is in progress worldwide. So I ask that you pray for the completion of it as God vindicates his glory and exalts his name. And I ask that you really consider whether God's spirit is in you working for his ministry of reconciling people to others or to others to him. If you don't care about the lost and have no desire to ever share the gospel, I'm not talking about getting up on a podium uh, and some stage and getting on television and trying to make some grand uh, platform where you can herald Christ. Just the normal day-to-day testifying of God when God gives you those opportunities. If that is something that is far from your heart and you could care less about, you have to wonder whether God's spirit is in you. Think about that. Because Jesus says when you have the spirit... We have the ability, the God-given spiritual ability to testify to the wonderful deeds of Christ. And that's what we're called to do. So would you do it? If you're not, would you repent? Say, God, forgive me for not caring about sharing your gospel. Forgive me as your child. That's what your spirit's in me for. And God, I'm tired of rebelling, so help me to continue walking in your statutes and repent and walk according to the new covenant that God has called us to. Let's pray.